Well, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John this morning in the passage that's in your bulletin. Our pastor, Brent, is sick this morning. He is on the mend, but uh, when you have a cold, sometimes the voice is the last thing to get better, and you need your voice to speak. And so uh, I'm going to preach this morning from a different passage that's in, than what's in your bulletin, and we'll pick up in John again after the holidays, but uh, I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible or perhaps a device that contains access to a Bible, uh, to actually turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and we're going to read, it's really kind of two stories that go together, so a little bit longer of passage, we're going to read from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Uh, So please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is at the point in Mark's gospel where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples ultimately to die. So uh, Mark 10, starting in verse 32, says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard about it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the gospel of our Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, would you guide us and help us? Would you change us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
One of my favorite children's books that we read, have read to our children many times is a book called Archibald's Next Big Thing. And Archibald's Next Big Thing is about a little chicken named Archibald who, it starts off, he's in an egg and then he's born and he's got brothers and sisters and they all seem to have like their own thing. Like one of them's really into music and one's into sports and, and he doesn't really have a thing. So he's worried about it. And then he goes to school. And at school, you have to introduce yourself and say what your big thing is. And so everyone's introducing and saying their name and what their big thing is, what they're really into. And he doesn't really have a thing. And so he's all the more distraught. And then he goes home and looks in the mailbox. And there's a blue card in the mailbox. And it says, your big thing is here. And he's like, well, where? You know, and so he goes on this journey uh, following the card that the big thing is here somewhere. And so he goes on this journey and he goes on all these amazing adventures. But then he continually moves on to the next one because he's still out there looking for that next big thing. And then finally, at the end of the story, the universe kind of guides him to figure out that when the card says your big thing is here, uh, it's talking about the big thing right in front of you. And that everything, every moment, every situation, uh, everything you have, it's a big thing. And it's really a message, I think, more for the parents of the children than the children. Although we all just need to learn this lesson that, you know, there's big, in pretty great detail, his death and resurrection to them uh, for the third time now in Mark's gospel. He's like, I'm going to die, but I'll rise again. And the disciples can't hear that uh, because they're preoccupied with what they think is about to happen. And what they think is about to happen is Jesus is about to show up in Jerusalem and throw down. Like at the beginning of this passage, if you notice, it says a lot of them were afraid. And it's because they think like there's about to be a fight and they think it's headed toward Jesus. Finally, you know, there was this hope of the Messiah sitting on the eternal throne. And they're thinking, like, it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to happen, like, maybe today. And uh, they start, you know, Jesus starts this conversation with them about greatness. You know, because they're thinking, like, I want to be, I want to sit at the top spot when that happens. And so Jesus starts talking to them about greatness. And the reality is we all want to be great. Like, isn't that what we all want is for people to say, man, he's great. Or, you know, maybe someday at our funeral for them to say, man, she was, she was one of the great ones. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Don't we want to do something that matters? Don't we want to be part of something important? And so I want to look at greatness today, uh, what the Bible says about greatness. And I want to look at the world's definition of greatness. And then I want to look at Jesus's definition of greatness and then finally, I want to look at how to be great. So first of all, I want to look at the world's definition of greatness. And at the beginning of this passage, we just read James and John, or, who were Jesus' like, two of the closest disciples. And they come to Jesus with a request that I would classify as somewhat bold. Uh, they say, do whatever we ask of you, Jesus. That's what we want. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want to sit at your right hand, and us too, next to you, 
uh, in your glory. And what they would surely be thinking of is this idea of the messianic banquet that you read about in the Old Testament. You can read about it, for instance, in Isaiah 25, when God finally sets things right and he puts his king on the throne and there will be a great banquet. And so they're thinking about that and they're thinking about how nice it would be if, you know, if Jesus is at the top, then maybe we could get, like, to his right and left up there, and that'll be pretty great. And Jesus tries again to explain that he's headed to suffer and die, and they're not, they just, like, don't hear it. They're like Archibald the chicken in the story. They just can't hear it. And the other disciples then find out, and they're mad, probably because they wish they could have kind of asked that question first and so there's this bickering among the disciples and then Jesus calls the 12 to him and he says you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them and Jesus knows that what these disciples are after is greatness and we're after greatness too and there's a worldly there's the world's definition of greatness which is not what God's definition is. The world's definition of greatness is be prominent. Uh, it's be above people. Like, just be above them. Do something noticeable. Uh, you know, how many people do you have under you? I love the comedy TV show The Office and a kind of thing that a gag that's going all through that show is, you know, who's number two? If George, uh, if uh, Michael Scott is number one, he's the general manager, then who's his number two? Are you assistant manager or assistant to the manager? And uh, it's so petty and it works because it's what we're all like. We all want to know, like, who's, you know, where do I rank? Where do I stack up in comparison to everyone else? And thankfully for us today, we have a way to find out. We can count our followers. Uh, we can actually rank each other based on who's got the biggest platform. Uh, today, uh, the person with the most followers on Instagram is the Portuguese soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo. He's got over 600 million followers on Instagram, which means that there's about one in 10 humans in this world who are like wanting to know what he's up to at all times. And you know, what could be greater than that, right? Uh, you know, influencer is a job today, you know, because having influence is what makes you great. The size of your platform, doing something big, doing something noticeable is great. And Knoxville has our own kind of, you know, we go along with all these definition, definitions of greatness and we have other ones more specific to Knoxville, like, you know, having a good looking family and, you know, being well connected and reputation and busyness and uh, being involved and all of those are fine things on their own, but as a definition of greatness, they will fail you greatly. Uh, similarly, churches have definitions of greatness, like uh, being big. It's always good if you want to be a great church, right? Or having a lot of important people or, you know, influencers or culturally relevant people making a visible impact and those are part of the worldly definition of greatness too. Uh, and the problem, there's a couple problems with pursuing those, that world's definition of greatness. And the first is that it, it erodes community. It happens right away with these disciples, right? James and John ask their question and then immediately all the other disciples are indignant with them. Uh, there's conflict among the disciples because they're vying for position. 
Uh, you can't be in community with people if you're competing with them for greatness. Uh, second problem with the world's definition of greatness is that it dulls our senses. Uh, do you notice in this passage that these disciples just cannot hear what Jesus is saying to them? And your pursuit of the world's definition of greatness can make you similarly miss all kinds of important things. Uh, one of my favorite things about being a parent and raising young kids is that it kind of takes you back to all those things you learned in preschool and kindergarten and those early years of school that are actually really great, like the planets. And so we start looking up into the sky again, and like it's pretty cool that you can see Venus and Jupiter. And we ought to look up a lot more but, you know, for the last, like, 30 years, I haven't because, I don't know what, I was busy <laughs> pursuing greatness or something. Um, so, you know, similarly, our pursuit of greatness makes us not be present with the people we love. You know, don't people always say at the end of life, like, I my one regret is I wasn't present. Or, you know, so much time passed so quickly, and I, I kind of missed it because I was somewhere else. I was thinking about other things, and the reality is that your pursuit of the world's definition of greatness can make you miss the most important thing. And so I want to move now to God's definition. Okay, if that's the world's definition, what's God's definition? And in verses 43 and 44, uh, Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Uh, so in God's kingdom, the greatest people are those that serve. And I want you to just think about what a servant actually is. Like think about an actual person whose station in life is a servant. And this is what one author says about what a servant is. He says, servants give their days to small, mostly overlooked tasks over long periods of time with no accolade. I'll read that one again. Servants give their days to small, mostly overlooked tasks over long periods of time with no accolade. And that same author goes on to conclude then that obscurity and greatness are not opposites. So by God's definition, then, it's possible to be, like, truly great, like, on a cosmic level, and the only person that knows it is God himself. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, another great scholar, pastor, says this. He says, in the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. True discipleship has at its heart letting go of our desire for honor in this world in order to bestow honor on others. So what does true greatness look like today? Uh, true greatness can look like paying attention to children, uh, in Jesus' day, children were pretty much despised. Uh, today, it's a little different, but uh, children are often overlooked, and it's thought of maybe a slightly lesser vocation to just care for children, when the fact is uh, that in Jesus' mind, that might be the greatest 
You know, some of us might kind of say like, man, I feel like all I do these days is change diapers and clean up messes and stuff like that, and I wish I was doing more. And, and Jesus, I think, would say that greatness. Say that it's greatness. Uh, greatness looks like doing your work with integrity day in and day out, even if it's not that exciting. Uh, greatness can look like loving people that are difficult to love or loving people who don't love you back, or loving people who may not even notice that you are loving them. Uh, it looks like investing in people that are not going to like boost your stock at all, or maybe uh, investing in people that are going to lower your stock. Uh, greatness can look like praying for someone, even though they might never know you did. Or it can look like treating all people with kindness and respect, no matter who they are and no matter what they look like, and especially caring and making time for people that have no resources and no friends. Uh, it can look like asking questions to just truly find out about people. It can look like hearing them and getting to know them and caring for them. It can look like putting the needs of others before your own needs. And I want to acknowledge, first of all, this morning, that there's actually a lot of greatness in this room. It doesn't often get noticed as greatness. It gets noticed as just like kind of middle-of-the-road stuff, but it's actually what God calls great. We ought to encourage each other toward greatness. Uh, but I want to also acknowledge this morning that if we're honest, there's a lot of the world's notions of greatness that have actually made their way into this room. And it shows, our, it shows itself in the way we compare, and the way in our minds we compare and we kind of size each other up and measure ourselves against other people and other families and all the things. It shows itself in the joylessness of feeling like a failure if you don't have something to show for yourself. Uh, it shows itself in apathy about the lost and pursuing the lost, because when we pursue the lost, we often have very little to show for ourselves. Uh, it shows itself in the American church as a whole, which has become progressively meaner over the last few years, and the way the meanness is excused in the church is that, oh, well, we're trying to preserve our influence in the world, uh, taking on that worldly notion of greatness. And so, if that's God's definition of greatness, I want to close this morning by thinking about how to be great and in verse 45, uh, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the call is to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus into grace, greatness. And they start following him, and they are headed uh, to Jericho, and then Jerusalem. And on the way, they encounter Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. And he's out there crying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's like, dude, shut up. This is Jesus. Like, we're going to a fight, and you're, like, talking about Jesus having mercy on you? And, you know, this, is, this man is a nobody. To be blind 2,000 years ago meant that you produced nothing. And so surely someone great like Jesus wouldn't take the time. But Bartimaeus won't quit, and so he keeps on calling out. And finally, and Jesus comes to him, and he stops, and he says, call him, and people get him, and... Jesus asked Bartimaeus the same exact question that he just asked the disciples. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, I want to see 
And Jesus heals him, and he says that his faith has made him well, and Bartimaeus follows Jesus. Bartimaeus becomes a follower of Jesus. And I want us just to think about why Mark would put those questions together. You know, the same question to the disciples that Jesus asked to Bartimaeus. And he, he does it because it's a living demonstration of the two notions of greatness. Okay, Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And surprisingly, Bartimaeus, the nobody, gets it right, and these disciples who are with Jesus all the time get it wrong. And so the disciples now have the opportunity to learn from this poor, blind beggar who is a nobody. Instead of asking to become great, start by asking for mercy and sight. Ask to be healed. I want you to think this morning, if you were honest, what do you really want Jesus to do for you? You know, if we're honest, we're just like those disciples. Like, what I really want is just to, like, I want God to make me great and give me a nice, easy life. And, you know, I can have, you know, I don't have to serve that much. And there's people that look up to me. And that's just, that, wouldn't that be nice? And the message of this text is if that's the answer that you give, that, that, that is the answer of those whose senses have been dulled. That's the answer of those who are, in fact, blind. It's the answer of those who cannot see how desperate their situation actually is. If that's what you want out of life, you will miss Jesus, and that will be disastrous. So what would they have learned? What would the disciples have learned from this interaction, and what can we learn? The first thing is we're a lot more like Bartimaeus than we think. Blind and hopeless. Uh, nothing, did you notice, like, nothing good is ever going to happen to Bartimaeus until Jesus shows up. And that is the story of each one of us. Uh, James and John are actually demonstrating their blind hopelessness as they approach him, still thinking about all these worldly notions of greatness. But here's the good news for us. Jesus is willing to stop. For a blind beggar who produces nothing, Jesus is willing to stop, and he will stop for you too. You know, the disciples are preoccupied with greatness. What's Jesus preoccupied with? He should be, I don't know, thinking about how he's about to endure the hardest test in the history of the universe and be crucified, but instead he's preoccupied with continuing to extend mercy to the needy, okay? And I want to say to you this morning, Jesus knows all the ways you're messed up, and he will stop for you. And you can't be a follower of Jesus, actually, unless you see yourself in Bartimaeus, specifically that your approach to becoming great has rendered you helpless and worthless and in need of mercy from God, and you can't even trust yourself to see clearly. Like, there are ways that you are actively messing up your life right now, and you don't even see them. And if that's you, come to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. I want you to think about God's vision of greatness again, and that 
and Sinclair Ferguson's definition about how it's about how far you come down, actually. It's Advent now. We're focusing on the fact that God came down. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus came down, down, down. He was born poor in a barn to a Jewish teenager. He was placed in a donkey trough. Then he lived in obscurity for 30 years. There's like two stories about the next 30 years of his life. What was he doing? Building things and being kind to people? That's it? And then when he finally reveals who he actually is, he's either treated like a spectacle or totally misunderstood by those he loved or totally despised. Then he's mocked spit upon, flogged, as our text says, and finally killed as a ransom. Who do you pay a ransom for? You would only ever pay a ransom for someone you cherished, right? Someone you loved. You would only pay a great price for someone who means everything to you. And what it's saying is that these dull disciples and dull disciples like us are everything to him. He sees deep into your heart. He's not ashamed of you. He's not repulsed. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to become great the real way. And if you know that, you will become great. And if that's your story, you can serve because, well, you've got everything else. So I want to invite us this morning in closing to become great the Jesus way and pray that our church would become great the Jesus way. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, forgive us for being like these disciples, uh, for being dull, for often being distracted and losing sight of what true greatness is and your great love for us. I pray that we'd be changed by the gospel and pray that you would use us as a body to reflect your goodness and glory. I pray that we would be a body of people uh, known for the way we serve. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.